next steps. And we would love if anybody has not participated in next steps, that you would take that step and join the next steps, which will be coming up at the end of the month. It's just an opportunity to get to know Joel and Lindsay, to get to know the church, uh, what we're about as a church, et cetera. So they're going to have some lunch for you. And you'll see that coming up here toward the end of the month, so don't miss out on it. If Also, we'd love to get some information from you, not something that we uh, are able to populate our information. Uh, re- what I'm trying to say something. I don't even know what I'm trying to say anymore. So the point is, is that we'd love to get some information so that we can communicate with you more about the church. That card is in this beautiful uh, flyer that sits on your brochure that sits on your chairs when you come in. It's also got an amazing picture of Joel and Lindsay there. I mean... <laughs> What a gorgeous couple. I mean, how can you not love them? So anyways, that being said, (laughs) I want to mention that next week is going to be a family service, which simply means kids are going to be in service with us. So that's an exciting time. So know that if you're a parent, the kids are going to be joining in with us. And if you're uh, somebody, you're an adult, then make sure we make room for those kids too, all right? And finally, Easter is coming. And I'll tell you what, it is the time to be at church. And we're going to do two services So make sure you are aware of that. Uh, Maybe Joel and Lindsay will actually be asking people, what service are you going to come to so that everybody doesn't end up at one service? But we've got two times, 9 a.m. and 10.30. So make sure you remember that. And uh, even let Joel, come on, let Joel know so the guy's not worried about it on Easter morning, right? But that said, I'm sure the Lord has something to say to us. Are you ready, Joel? Are you ready? Oh, yeah, he's like, I'm ready. Come on, come on. I about took the mic here, buddy. Yeah, I'm going to need that one. All right. I, um, so it's, uh, it's good to be here this morning. I've uh, just in, in worship, <clears throat> um, I, I just had this thought, and then while Kayla was talking uh, about remembering, uh, building that altar of remembrance and stacking stones, and that, that's, what, that's what piling up your... Uh, intentional memories of what God is doing and has done, that's what that is. That's, that's stone stacking. And uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a practice. We actually talked about a little bit last week, and it's a practice um, that is in the core of what it means to be a part of the church. Is it, we go through, we, we, we don't skip out on seasons as a church and as a follower of Christ. You go through every season. Um, but what we do is we remember each and every season and each and every moment God's with us. And we just stack those stones. And so, uh, Matt, I, I love that. I want that thought to, to stick with us this morning. I want to begin uh, this morning's passage in John chapter 4. We're in a series called Giving Up. Everybody say, Giving Up. Yeah. We're not giving up this morning. We're in a series called Giving Up. And it's actually on making space for God's best. Making space for God's best. Um, uh, John chapter 4 is the story uh, the meeting of Jesus and the woman at the well. And so it's a longer passage of scripture. So you guys hang in there with me, stick with me. We're going to read this entire thing, but it's such a good core story for us to get into our bones as a church. All right, John chapter four, beginning in verse five. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Uh, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. 
And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living, living water. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty, and I have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you're now with is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain all this to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back in the town, back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Many of the Samaritans, verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was seven, I moved to Birmingham. Uh, 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 I, I was living in Birmingham, Alabama, and I moved from Birmingham to Lakeland, Florida. Um, my, my dad told us that we were moving to Disney World, and, uh, but in reality, we moved to Polk County. And um, I, you know, feel free to do some research, and you will see that uh, those two are not the same thing. Uh, quite opposite, actually. I was in the second grade, and um, I was just along for the ride, going to school, kind of waiting on my first trip to Disney, and uh, I, I adjusted pretty fine. Um, uh, my oldest brother was in seventh grade at the time, and he, he transferred to Polk County at the beginning of middle school. And uh, middle, school's, middle school, uh, if I polled all of you in here and I said, what is the worst part of uh, uh, school growing up? Most of you would raise your hand and you would say middle school. Middle school was, it's, it's just something about middle school. It's tough. But my brother was cool. He was the coolest brother around. And I knew he'd be fine. I wasn't too worried at the ripe old age of seven. And uh, I figured he'd, he'd just settle in just fine. And I remember later he told me about his first week. And so he went into class and, and, uh, and he was just, we, we were trying to settle in. We were trying to make friends and, and, and be ourselves. And he was a big goofball. And so he's just telling jokes uh, uh, every day and, and, and trying to get some people to laugh and trying to get friends. And he said, um, he said a couple days in, the very first week, his teacher looked at him and said, uh, Mr. Sims, 
kind of interrupted class, and she said, I don't know how they do things back in Alabama, but down here in Florida, we don't act like idiots. And uh, he said, um, he said some, of the, some of the class laughed, and, and uh, he said it was, it was so embarrassing. He was so ashamed. He said, I never said another word in that class for the rest of the year. I never talked again. Now, if you knew anything about my brother, you would be like, that in and of itself was a miracle. How do you shut down somebody who that's what they do? They talk and make jokes all the time. But he, he felt such shame that the damage had kind of been done. And the story really um, had changed. In his mind, he went from easygoing, you know, fun-loving Bama kid to now he's the annoying, loudmouth idiot from Alabama. And uh, everyone knew it was true because the teacher said it was true. Now, the truth was that his teacher's probably having a bad day, couple that with she probably shouldn't have been teaching, uh, <laughs> that, that, in that in that moment, um, it wasn't true. But... But the damage was done, and nothing could really change it now. And this was, this was the new story. This was the story of shame, story of shame for, for him. Shame is powerful. There are few things in life as powerful as shame. Uh, oftentimes, a story of shame has the power to shape much more than a year of middle school. For many of us, it, it really shapes our entire lives. Uh, James Brian Smith says this, it says, he says that story is the central function of the human mind. Everything that you think goes through the filter of your imagination and is attached to story. Everything we believe, we believe because there's a, a story to it. So, um, you know, I, I believe that lying is bad. And so the reason is, is that, you know, I remember being told when I was little uh, that lying was bad. And then uh, I remember watching my friend Sam, who told lies like all the time, constantly, create more trouble through all of his lying than, than what would have been otherwise. And so really, I mean, that's why I, I, I believe lying is, is bad. I think that texting and driving is bad. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's a good idea. Uh, the reason is, is uh, I remember when I was a youth pastor before we came here and planted the church, I, I remember uh, some of the kids that got into uh, car accidents because uh, they were texting and driving. And so I think back and oh, well, that's that's uh, that, that's why it is. Uh, you know, some some uh, you know some some women think that all men are bad. All men are bad. Well, the reason you believe that is possibly because you only dated a bunch of losers. But <laughs> but but. <laughs> But that has been your story. And so we go, well, that must be all men. And some guys think all women are cruel and mean. And that's just because the women that you were with didn't like your jokes. And you thought, well, they must all be cruel and mean. And so everything that we believe, there's a, there's a story behind it. We, everything we believe that we think about ourselves, about God, about relationships, it's all because there's a story behind it. And so... Where does, where does shame come from? Here's, here's what shame is. Shame is any story that we tell ourselves that is louder than the story of redemption. That's what shame is. And so this is where we find ourselves in the text with the woman at the well, the, the, the story that we just read. 
Have you ever seen uh, one of those, um, one of those what's wrong with this photo pictures? What's wrong with this photo? Like you, see, you, know, it's, you see a photo and it's a guy and, and he's standing, staring at a computer and he's trying to fix it, but he's got like a sledgehammer in his hand. It's like, you know, what's wrong with this photo kind of thing? Or, um, uh, it, 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 usually it's, uh, you're looking at a photo, it, it seems normal, it just, you know, something is off. And so this is where we find Jesus with the woman at the well. This, this story for us, if we didn't know the context, it would seem like it's pretty normal, but it's not normal at all for the culture of the day. First off, Jesus was alone with a woman. He's already known as a holy man around the country, and he's leading a movement, um, uh, leading a movement from of Israel to bring Israel back to God. And in that culture, there's a you know many devout Jewish men. None of them would have allowed themselves to be alone with a woman. And, and, and if it was unavoidable, they certainly wouldn't talk to a woman. And so here Jesus is, we find immediately in the text, he's sitting alone with a woman and he's talking with a woman. The second thing is, is that she's a Samaritan. And Samaritans and Jews did not get along at all. The, the Jewish people would, would never want to, be, want to sit there and talk with the Samaritans. They wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. And especially, they wouldn't eat or drink with them. And yet, here's Jesus. And then the third thing is, is the reputation. On top of all this, this woman obviously has a reputation around town. She comes to the well to get water at the least likely time to see anybody else. Everybody else that comes to the, to the well, or the women that come to the well, they either come early in the morning or late in the evening, and here she is in the middle of the day, and she doesn't want to rub shoulders with anybody around. And so Jesus sits there with this woman, and we're already kind of, we already should be kind of shifting in our seats as we read this text because we go, man, this is, there's, something, there's something off here. And then all of a sudden, he starts up a conversation. He asks for some water. Will you, will you get me some water? And she goes, you know, she's shocked. And she says, well, you know, why, why, would you, why would you even ask me that? And, and Jesus says, well, you know, if you knew who I was, I, I, you'd ask me and I'd, I'd give you living water. And, and she goes, well, well, let me have some of that living water. I want some of that living water. I don't want to keep having to come back through here. I know what she was thinking. My guess is, is she's probably thinking, I don't want to keep coming in the middle of the day. It's hot, and I'm definitely not going to come at the other parts of the day because I don't want to see anybody. Then I could just hunker down at my own house. And I don't have to see anyone, and I can have living water, running water. I don't ever have to come back here again. I don't have to see anyone. And so Jesus, being Jesus, says, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll give you the living water. First, go back and get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And, of course, Jesus knows, and he says, that's right, you don't have one. You've, you've had five, and the one you're now isn't your the, the one that you're with now isn't your husband. Um, and so she realizes he's a holy man and, and, and immediately starts asking a, a, a bunch of religious questions. So she goes, oh, you, you're, clearly you're a holy person. So, so this, here's the deal. we got a big argument going on. So we think, the Samaritans think that, that, that the place to worship is on this mountain, but you Jews think it's supposed to be on this mountain. And so what, what, is, what is like the right mountain that we're supposed to be worshiping on? And Jesus knows what's going on. It's, it's, here's the truth. Anytime you put your finger on a sore spot, a, a sore spot, a sore truth. People like to begin talking about something else. We want to we change the context. We want to change the subject. 
And the best subject for distracting attention is religion. Because it seems like it's a good conversation, but really what the conversation was about had nothing to do with what Jesus really wanted to do. She goes, she says, I don't, I don't have a husband. And, he call, and then he, he says, yeah, this is true. This is what's going on. And, he, and then she goes immediately, well, well, let's talk about some religious stuff. Where are we supposed to worship? And Jesus is going, that, that is, what if he had gotten into a big theological conversation with her right there? What, what, if, what was her biggest need at that time? Did she need to know what mountain to worship on? Absolutely not. So everything, really, that the woman did was an attempt to deflect and distract. And every single time, Jesus keeps bringing the whole thing back around to this central story, this living water. Then, of course, she's transformed, and she leaves, and she goes and tells the whole, she goes and tells the whole city. So how, how is this possible? Here's this woman incapable of being around other people. She had to go to the well in the heat of the day. Nobody would see her. She didn't want anyone, uh, anyone in town to see. And in a moment with Jesus, she leaves and becomes the greatest evangelist the city has ever known. In a moment. And all this occurs because Jesus identifies the shame story that covered her entire life and showed her the story of redemption, one that was so much bigger, bigger than her story. And there's a reason that this is one of the most favorite, this is one of the favorited passages of Scripture for so many people in all the Gospels. It's because so many people can identify. So many people can identify with the story of shame. It's something that we all deal with. It's whether we realize it a ton or not. We, we all deal with shame. There's a few signals, shame signals. Um, if, if you were to do a personal inventory and you were to look in your life and you say, what are some, what are some areas where I might uh, find shame in my own life, knowing that one of the reasons that the Lord uh, came was to heal from shame. So, what are, so a couple of signals. One is, um, one is loneliness. Loneliness is a is a shame signal. Notice I didn't say alone. I said loneliness. Being alone and loneliness are, are, are not the same thing. Whether it's an inability to make deep friends or, or a perceived inability to have deep, meaningful relationships, shame is a key inhibitor from deep, meaningful relationships. Uh, another one is uh, regret. Regret. If you found in your life that you often go back to something in your past uh, in regret, it can be a, a, a shame signal. Maybe it's something that you did. Maybe it's something you didn't do or should have done or something you've accomplished or something that you wished you, that you would have accomplished. And so if regret is part of your story, then you probably haven't been able to look back and receive grace from God. To be able to say God has aligned this moment for me. If you haven't done that, then regret can be a shame signal. Another one is uh, just childhood wounds. Childhood wounds, maybe from uh, 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 mom or dad. These always result in shame unless they've been healed through the work of God. And, and everybody has childhood wounds. Everybody comes up. Whether it's childhood wounds from your parents and, you know, maybe I wish mom had done this or maybe I wish dad had done this or not done this. And the problem is the trap of shame oftentimes is 
is feeling shame about shame. Well, you start to go through a list. You go, well, yeah, I do. I, I, I am noticing a lot of these signals. And then you start to begin to feel shameful about the shame. And that's the trap of shame. So a couple points this morning. The first one is this, just about shame, is um, sin creates shame, and shame creates distance. Sin creates shame, and shame creates distance. So if you go all the way back to the, the creation story, Adam and Eve, goes all the way back to the creation story, Adam and Eve, they disobey, and the, and the first thing that they do as the first people is they run and they go hide. Now, they used to be unashamed. They, there used to be no shame at all to them. In fact, um, uh, there's, a, there's a passage of Scripture, Genesis 2.25, that I used to think was such a funny verse when I was a kid. You know when you're a kid. Any, is anybody raised in church and you go find the funny verses of the Bible? And uh, Anybody do that? Anybody, you're an adult now and you're like, I wasn't a Christian as a kid, but now that's what I'm doing. I'm going to find the funny. Yeah. So Genesis 2.25, I thought I was you know, eight years old. And I found this verse that said, the man and wife were naked and unashamed. And I just thought... Ha, 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 I'm eight years old. You know, I just laughed. I thought it was funny. The problem is this. I get older, and I think back, and I go, the very first, the very first result, the very first consequence of sin in the very first people is recognition that they are ashamed. They're ashamed. So they, what do they do? They run and they go hide. And so God, uh, uh, Scripture tells us that God goes out, and, he, and he's looking for them, and he's calling for them. Where, where are you? Where, 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 where are you? And they're, and they're hiding off and they're covering themselves because they've done something that they're ashamed of. The truth is, is that as you and I enter this world, in a world of brokenness and fallenness, and if, if all have sinned and fallen short of the perfection of the glory of God, then the result that we find ourselves in so frequently is one of hiding or of covering up because it's the very first response. So, so we fall short, we sin, and then we hide. So sin creates shame and then shame creates this distance and all of a sudden there's this brokenness, not only the relationships between us and God, but now us and others, other people. The second one is this. There is no transformation without truth. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and I don't have to keep coming back here to draw water. And so he tells her, why don't you go call your husband and then come back? She says, well, I don't, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says to her, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five. And the man you're with now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Jesus isn't now giving her permission Jesus, Jesus isn't now validating all of her decisions that she's made in her life. Jesus is offering an opportunity to reframe her entire life and to start over. The problem is, isn't shame, the problem isn't the core of it that she has to come in her own mind in the middle of the day so that nobody can see her. The core problem is the brokenness and the sin. And so Jesus comes to say, you're right, you don't have a husband. You're right to say you've got issues. You're right to say, we're right to say I've got problems. We're right to say that I, I've, I've got, I got, I got stuff that needs work. We're right to take a step back and go, man, if I, if, if I really take a step back and I start to write out all the stuff that's going on in my life, I, there's, some, there's some stuff. 
God, God has to do something. God's got to do something there. God's got to fix this. He's got to forgive me. He's got to restore me. He's got to, that's the, that's the, that's the first step. That's the first point. But it doesn't have to be your story there. You don't have to stay there. Well, I'm, I'm messed up. I'm jacked up. I'm broken. Well, I guess that's it. I'm done. Jesus doesn't bring truth to her to shame, but to bring freedom. But if you're ever confronted with truth, and you feel shame, that's not Jesus. If somebody ever confronts you with truth, or the Lord confronts you with truth, and there's shame there, that's, that's not Jesus. Shame doesn't come from Jesus. Conviction does, and shame and conviction aren't, aren't, aren't the same things. Jesus has no problem confronting us. We need to be confronted. But his goal isn't to shame us in confrontation. It is to bring freedom. Because that's what truth does. And there is, no, there is no freedom without knowing the truth. And so that's the, that's the balance. That's the dance that we have as we begin to walk with the Lord. And he begins to reveal things little by little. We go, okay, God, you, I, I surrender all. I'm making space for you. You can do whatever you want in my own life. And we're going we're gonna to make space for whatever he says. And he goes, okay, well, <clears throat> now that you've taken a step back and the light's kind of crept in just a little bit more, you see that over there? You see, that's, I actually want that over there. That's what I want. And you're going, oh, I didn't think you saw that. <laughs> oh, Lord. But, but the goal, the goal of Jesus isn't to bring shame. Oftentimes, if we remember a lot of the relationships that we've had, the brokenness of the relationships that we've had, um, that, that can be the goal, intentional or unintentional. Anybody ever heard the phrase, you should be ashamed? Anybody ever said the phrase, you should be ashamed? No, that's, that's, uh, that's not a good phrase. That's not something Christ followers say. Now, you should know, you should feel convicted, you should be aware, you should know that this is the wrong thing and this is the right thing, but if you're ever in a moment in a confrontation or a discussion or a conversation with Jesus or another Jesus follower and shame enters the conversation, that cloud isn't from Jesus. However, the conviction that comes from that conversation is. So there's no truth. There is no freedom without, without truth. The third one is this. The central story of my life is this. Jesus loves me, this I know. The central story isn't whatever occurred when you were 7, 12, 15, 34, 54, 74. Our lives are made up of all kinds of stories. But the central story that gives context and meaning to all the others is this, that God demonstrates His love for us, and it is this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's, that's the central story. And so the Samaritan woman was still an adulterer, and I don't know the context. I don't know, how, I don't, I don't know how much had happened to her and how guilty she was versus other people. Versus I, I don't know the context. I'm going to trust Jesus' uh, words in that space. I just know this, that Jesus didn't pretend that her sin and her brokenness didn't exist. It's just that the story of her life was now absorbed into the grace of God. So, so this is my story now. Come see a man that told me everything that I ever did. 
Notice, notice what she didn't say. She didn't say, come hear everything that I did. Come here, let me tell you everything that I did. Because that's not how she even thought about it anymore. In fact, the phrase that she said was, come see a man. Come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. And the tone of her life spoke of his grace. There's no greater story, not a more central story that gives meaning to everything else in our lives than this. Jesus loves me, this I know. I went to uh, the, one of the, uh, a school that I went to <clears throat> For, uh, to become a, a pastor uh, was an interdenominational uh, school. It just means that there were different denominations that went, and if you went, you didn't have to change denominations. You didn't have to change your faith while you were there. Um, so people that were all that were there, there were there were some Baptists that were there. There were Lutherans that were there. Uh, we had a couple Episcopal. We had some Church of God in Christ. Uh, we had, uh, we, I'm pretty sure there was a, there was a Methodist there. Uh, we had some Pentecostals. Uh, we had some Anglicans. We had some Presbyterians. Uh, I don't know what your background is. Maybe I named it. Maybe I didn't. There's about four million denominations. So, um, but we, we kind of, we all came together in this, uh, in this seminary and learned about Jesus and, uh, had some, uh, uh, had some pretty uh, rigorous conversations. <laughs> and, um, and so, I remember we, we would go to chapel service on Thursdays. Once a week uh, at this school, we go to chapel service, and it was very different than my experience of chapel that I had been to, uh, of church, that, of how I had grown up. And um, I went in, and it, was, it felt super formal, and there, were these, there was a huge, uh, uh, the, 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 the ceiling wasn't these awesome, cool rafters. It was like this huge dome, and there were paintings all over the whole dome, and it was, it was, it was actually beautiful. Uh, the music was not loud. The voices were way louder than the, than the, than the music was. And so uh, I remember going. It was never really filled. And I remember one day, out of all the chapels that I went to, I remember going to one chapel service, and I walked in on a Thursday morning, and it is completely jammed. Here comes the train, guys. <laughs> the, the chapel, the, the room was completely filled. And uh, I, there was a feel with a lot of people that I didn't, I didn't recognize. And um, there was a special uh, speaker that was, th that was there that day. Uh, his, his name was Raniero Cantalamessa. And uh, what had happened was uh, there had been a combined service with our, all the students and then uh, the uh, EWTN, which was a, a, a Catholic group that was uh, in, in town, uh, came also. So it was this mixed group that was in there. And so uh, Cardinal Raniero was, um, uh, he, was this, he was this tiny little man with a real thick Italian accent. And uh, he, he, um, uh, he had this brown, he wore a brown habit and a rope, like a, a, like a brown robe that had a, a, a hood. And... Um, uh, I, he was a part of the, he was a Franciscan friar, and, and, and the order of the Franciscans dated all the way back to the 1500s. So he's got a, uh, he's got a long, his denomination goes way back, all right? And, um, and so he was the preacher to the Pope. And so I didn't know this, but the Pope had to have, uh, when he would go to church, <laughs> when he'd go to Mass, he had to have his own, he had to have his own preacher. And so uh, uh, Raniero Cantalamessa was his, and so I remember he gets up there to speak, and I'm just expecting, I don't know what you expected, I expected the most boring thing that I could have ever thought, because it was, I just thought, here, this is, this is so new to me, 
And so he gets up there and he starts talking and he starts preaching and he's kind of soft-spoken and, and he's talking real slowly so that we can understand because his accent is so thick. And he's talking about um, the love of God. So I'm about the love of God. And, and, and it was neat to be in the room because it was so filled with, with, with people and I didn't, I didn't recognize hardly anybody. I didn't recognize, surely didn't recognize this guy. And uh, he would talk and then every few minutes he would stop he did, this, he did this probably two times. He would stop and he would tell a joke because he just thought, I guess they can't track everything that I'm saying, so I'm going to stop and tell a joke. The joke had nothing to do with the sermon. It just was like a joke. Like he just, okay, and all right, back to Romans, you know, and then, and so I remember, okay, this is, this is kind of this funny. And so he's preaching this message and, and you can just sense something special in the room. And he's preaching on the love of God and He's actually preaching a sermon on Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit uh, came into the upper room and people were filled with the Holy Spirit. The power of God met. And then all of a sudden, everybody that, was, that, that ever would want to know and hear the gospel, now the gospel is made available to anybody that wants to join at that table. And, and so in the, in, toward the end of his message, he says, okay, now I would like to sing a song. And I was like, what is going on? And he says, I, I, I want to sing a song. He says, maybe you know this song. And I was like, there's no way I know what song you're about to start singing. And he, start, he says, I'm going to start singing, and if you know the song, I would like for you to sing the song with me. Well, this chapel is full of people. And he starts, and he says, this tiny little man with his brown robe on, he begins to sing this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. In this room filled with people from, from backgrounds from all over, just fills with this song. I don't know what was the first Christian song you ever learned, but that was mine. And apparently it was a lot of people's. Apparently it was people, I guess, that live in Italy too. And apparently he learned the English version. <laughs> and we began to sing that song. And I don't know if you've ever been in a room in a space before where you just feel like there's something, there's something else that's in this room. It's, it, I don't know that it's just me. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure what this feeling is. And in that room, the presence of God is what it was, began to fill the room. And everybody started to sing louder. No instruments. No cool songs. I love the songs we sang. But this was Jesus Loves Me. All right? The only thing we didn't have in the room were little cups of Kool-Aid and little cookies, all right? That was what we were missing. We were singing Jesus Loves Me, and this song begins, begins to get louder and louder and louder, and then I'm looking around the room, and people start crying in the room, and this is why, because they're singing Jesus Loves Me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. You guys know the song. Why was it so powerful in that room? Because the central story of our lives isn't the stories that you have lived or that maybe you've even told yourselves as to why you might carry around so much shame and hiddenness in our own lives. Instead, the central story is this, is that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And here we are. And he saved us. 
And there's no greater truth than that. And so this Samaritan woman, church history says that her name was Fotina. Fotina. It says that she got up and leaves, and she goes and she tells the, the town, who I don't know the last time she talked to the town. I don't know that she last time she talked to anybody. She spent her life trying to hide. She, don't, she doesn't want another confrontation. And she goes into town and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. I, look, you already know everything you ever did. I know everything I've ever did. I'm not telling you everything I've ever did. I don't want to tell you everything I've ever did. And you don't want to tell me everything that you've done. That's, that's, that's one of, the, that's one of, the, some of the, the difficulties of the Internet. My goodness. Some people's lives, everything they've ever did, that they've ever done are on there. And they don't want it on there. And here she is. The whole town knows everything she's ever done. But they really don't know everything she's ever done. And so she comes, come here, come, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Why? Because the context of her life story is now nothing to do with shame, only to do with redemption. And so Potina goes and, and, and tells, the, tells the story of Jesus Church history says that she led so many people to the Lord after that that she became the pastor of the city that they were in. And then the officials got so angry because of the disruption that she had created is that later on that she became a martyr for her faith. They killed her. And the way that her life was ended was that they took her out of the city to a well and then they threw her back down into a well thinking that this would be the end of her story. What they didn't know was that the true beginning of her story, is that, that, that's where it began. That's actually where it began. The last day she goes to that well alone, she's thinking it's just another day covered in shame. And a moment with the master changed it all. Our series is about giving up. How do I make space for God's best? We all carry around shame. It's, it's, one of the, it's one of the biggest liars of our lives. Yet, the greatest truth, there is a, there is a truer truth. And that you and I have a choice, a regular choice, to believe that, to first receive that, and then to believe that, and then to own that in our own lives, and to live that out first. Because then it gives context to everything else. We got, um, we got, we got three ways a lot of times people walk into a room. Three, three ways that we tend to enter a room. The, the, the first one is, here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Anybody walk in a room like that? I've arrived. Here I am. Look at me. Look at me. The, 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 the second way is actually just like it. It's just like it, just the other side of the coin. And it's this. I'm not here. I'm not here. Don't look at me. The here I am is basically just saying this. Look over here. Look over here. Don't look over here. I'm ashamed of this. I don't want anybody seeing this. Look over here. Look over here. Here I am. The I'm not here says don't look at me. Don't, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Why? Because there's shame there. And the third way we walk into a room is there you are. That's how Jesus walked into a room. Every time he stepped into a room, he would say, there you are. Every time he'd walk up to a well or walk into a city or walk across a field, he would say, there you are. 
And you see a tax collector. He was in the top of a little tree hiding out. Nobody wanted anything to do with that tax collector. And he stopped. Hundreds of people are around him. He stops and he goes, hey, there you are. There you are. He sees the woman at the well covered in shame. He says, hey, 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 look at me, look at me. There you are. Only Jesus can remove that sin and shame. Walking in every room, there you are, there you are. I want to pray for you this morning, if you would, if you close your eyes. The question really is, are we willing to approach Jesus today in this room and say, there you are. There you are in my past. There you are in my present. There you are in my future. You're going to be there. There you are even in my own shame. There you are. Maybe you're in here this morning, and if you're honest, you'd say, Joel, I, I feel like I'm sitting across from Jesus this morning, and, and he's confronting me with some things I need to deal with. And, and, and I realize it's not to bring shame, but it's for my good, and, but I do need to deal with it this morning. And so that's really just my prayer, Joel. Will you pray for me for courage this morning? I feel like Jesus is sitting across from me. He's, he doesn't want to bring shame, but he is saying, I want you to deal with some stuff. If that's you, there's nobody looking around. It's just me. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, but just as a confession between you and God, would you just raise your hand real high and you put it back down? There's some things. Yeah, yeah, there's some things. Yes, yes. Anybody else? Yes. Man, what a, what a bold, what a courageous step. Maybe you're sitting in here and all morning you, you, know, you felt this weight on you. It, even while I've been talking, even while I've been talking, and you recognize now it, it, that weight, that feeling, it, it's a weight of shame. It could be from a thousand different things, but right now that's not what's important. What matters is that the story of your life becomes one of redemption, one of new life, one that is centered in what Jesus has done for you and, and in you. And so if that's you this morning and and your prayer today is this, Lord, make my life story about what you've done, not what I've done. You can have my heart today. That's your prayer. Make my life story about what you've done, not what I've done. You can have my heart today. You, You can even retell my story of shame. You take that, God, and give me your grace instead. If that's your prayer this morning, would you just raise it real high and you put your hand back down? Yes, yes, yes. Anybody else? Raise it real high and put it back down. God, this morning, I'm I'm grateful for your presence. I'm grateful for your grace. Holy Spirit, I'm grateful that you sit and rest in this room, and it it is actually your goodness and your kindness, your loving kindness, that would even bring us to a point where we could recognize that we need forgiveness, that we need to repent. God, I thank you for your kindness and your goodness that would draw us closer to you. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. God, I thank you that for those that are so bold in this room to say, God, you're dealing with me. You're dealing with me and I need to change. God, I thank you for those in the room that would say, God, there's things in me that I need you to take. I need you to take this. I need you to take this away from me. Let your story of redemption become my story. It's not about me anymore. It's about you. God, I thank you for that. Lord, I pray for every person in the room that lifted their hand. God, would you fill them right now with your Holy Spirit. Make them aware 
of exactly what it is you want them aware of. And God, allow them, give them the courage, the ability, God, the faith to release to you what you're calling forth from them. And in turn, receive the fullness of all that you have and to walk in peace. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great word. Hey, good morning. Welcome, and thank you for being with us today. If it's your first time here at Four Corners Church, I want to say we're so glad that you're here. Um, If you wouldn't mind, I know Joel Fritz said earlier, we've got connection cards that you can fill out in these worship guides on the chairs. If it's your first time, I'd love the opportunity just to send you a note thanking you for being with us. So let us know. Um, If you come here regularly, you can connect with us through these connection cards as well. Do let us know how we can be praying for you and with you. And um, also let us know how God is working and um, update us on things we have been praying on because there's a place down here that says, thank God. Ask God, thank God. And it helps us remember, like Kayla was saying earlier, uh, remember what God has done. It's really, it's good for us. It's good for us to remember. Um, For those who call Four Corners Church your home, um, I want to remind you that everything that happens ministry inside and outside the church is funded by uh, the generosity of our church people. And um, we learn through the life of the early church, when you study the early church, uh, that generosity is about using anything and everything to bring people out of death into the life of Christ and into a community of believers who have a shared life in Christ. And so um, the generous culture that a Christian's called to using our time and our talent and our treasure, um, it ends up making your community flourish, right? Because we bring the Christian generosity uh, to the world and it pulls them out of life's of isolation and of loneliness and of poverty and hunger. And our, our generous culture is what does that. It's what a Christian is called to do. And it's countercultural. Generosity is. It's because it's the kingdom here. We do things differently. So you can give to God through our local church if you'd like. You can do that on the website. You can uh, text the number on the screen or you can give in the drop box in the back. Um, I love how Max Licato says it. He says, where grace happens, generosity happens. And so I encourage you, just like Kayla, you said it earlier and you reflect on it too, um, remember what God's done, reflect on it, and then uh, respond to it. Ask God, how can I give of my time and my treasure and my talent to you, God, because I want to be generous because you are generous. It's a value of ours. Generosity is a privilege um, as a Christian. So, Great. Thank you. Hey, would you guys stand up with me, with, with me and Lance? Would y'all stand up with us? The uh, uh, prayer team, our altar prayer team, would you guys come forward? This is, uh, I'm going to pray a prayer over you guys and uh, dismiss. But if you have a need this morning that you want prayer for, uh, I want to invite you. We've got a team up here that would love to pray with you, that would love to call it to God with you. And uh, you're, you're not alone. And I want you to know that uh, as, a, as a part of the body of Christ, uh, you are a part. And, and, you, and you and I need the other parts. And so I want to encourage you this morning, uh, if you'd like prayer this morning, uh, you can come up after, uh, after, after we pray and dismiss and find somebody on our, on, our, on our prayer team. All right, hey, would you hold your hands out like this while I pray for you? Now may the God who gives living water 
the generous God who gives without holding back, may he pour his Holy Spirit, the grace and the goodness of his Spirit into your life and may it fill you up, your heart, soul, mind, and strength into overflowing. And may the peace and the joy of God be your expression this week. And may you come back safely this next week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, love you guys. We'll see you all this next week.